Welcome to Veterans in America. I'm Stephanie O'Neill. And I'm David Gorn. Veterans in America is a podcast that tackles issues that matter to American veterans, to their friends, to their families, and it's produced by the nonprofit RAND Corporation. Join with us as we journey into veterans' lives and explore the issues they face after serving our nation, what they go through when they return home, and what can be done to help make their lives better. Today, we take a look at an invisible wound of war. One that's been around for as long as war itself. It was called shell shock in World War I. In the Second World War, they called it battle fatigue and combat exhaustion. According to the Veterans Administration, up to half of all military discharges during World War II were caused by it. How do you sleep? It'd be all right if it weren't for those dreams. Now, back in the 40s, the War Department produced movies like this one made to teach military doctors about so-called battle fatigue. Do you dream about anything in particular? Terrible stuff. Barrage, strafing, being stuck out in a foxhole. Memories, uh, sort of. Does noise bother you? I want to jump out of bed every time a plane goes overhead. I've been so nervous and jittery I can't even write. Well, don't worry too much, soldier. You'll be better soon. But many didn't get better, not after the World Wars, not after Korea or Vietnam. And it wasn't until 1980 that America's mental health community formally recognized post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Now today, everyone's heard of PTSD, but let me give you some numbers. Since 9-11, nearly 3 million service members have deployed to war zones in Iraq and Afghanistan about half of them more than once. The RAND Corporation's Invisible Wounds of War study estimates that as many as one in five who've seen battle experiences PTSD, which, if left untreated, can rip apart lives with nightmares, flashbacks, insomnia, anger, guilt, and feelings of isolation. So today, we're going to take a look at an innovative but evidence-based approach to treating PTSD, one that's reaching more veterans than ever before. It's called virtual reality exposure therapy, and it sounds a little counterintuitive, but it heals by transporting the veteran back to the traumatic war event via a computer-generated parallel universe. On a recent afternoon, I'm running through the streets of an Afghan village. My heart's racing as the sights and sounds of war explode before my eyes. In my arms is a rifle that has no bullets. Instead, when I pull the trigger, it speeds my passage through this computer-generated warscape. When I want to change course, I aim the rifle's barrel, and I'm sent in a new direction. And through it all, it's hard to remember that none of this is real, that it's all happening inside a pair of virtual reality goggles I'm wearing here at a University of Southern California Research Center in Playa Vista, California. It's called the USC Institute for Creative Technologies. Psychologist Skip Rizzo directs the Medical Virtual Reality Unit, and he's my guide through this virtual tour of duty. You know, we can make characters pop out of this palm grove and start firing at you. We can have explosions way off in the distance, or we can bring it on in. You feel the base shaker platform. Four subwoofers under there that run the sound through. AK-47s. 
Rizzo's been at the forefront of innovations in this field since the mid-1990s. The software he's showing me is called BraveMind, and it's now used at more than 100 clinical sites, including VA hospitals, military bases, and several universities. To understand how it works to heal PTSD, Rizzo says you got to first understand a bit about something called exposure therapy, which has been around for a few decades. The traditional method, somebody with PTSD goes to a clinician's office, clinician then says, okay, I want you to close your eyes and I want you to narrate one of your experiences. And usually they've categorized them from the least aversive to the most. And we start off with the least, you know, I want you to take that event that happened while you were driving a Humvee and I want you to close your eyes and imagine you're in it now and talk about it, describe it as if you're going through it now. So the veteran does that out loud. Then the therapist has them repeat the story several times, each time adding more detail in order to unearth more memories. When it's done using just a person's memories, it's called imaginal exposure therapy. When virtual reality is introduced, you're playing a whole new game. You're going to have small mortars coming down at different points in time. You're going to add helicopters do all the explosions and stuff. The goal, Rizzo says, is twofold. To excavate as much anxiety as possible from the veteran and then to extinguish it. And even for non-veterans, the experience is intense, says Terry Tenelian. She's a senior behavioral scientist with the RAND Corporation. Having sat and participated in a virtual reality therapy, it is kind of really overwhelming that it does give you that very, very real experience. And that, Rizzo says, is exactly why it works so well. It sounds like torture at first, but it's the best evidence-based approach for treating PTSD, this trauma-focused approach. Eventually, as you do this repeatedly, the anxiety dissipates quicker and the anxiety doesn't go up as high. August 20th, 2004, in Mosul. That was a life-changing day for me. That was the day a 100-pound IED exploded in front of the Humvee driven by former Marine and Army National Guard soldier Joe Merritt. If they had waited 10 more seconds, I wouldn't be here. I would have been freaking a soup sandwich. Somebody would have been putting me in a bucket because there wouldn't have been anything left. As it was, the vehicle in front of his took most of the hit. Merritt and his crew rescued the soldiers who safely fled that vehicle as flames engulfed it. But as he tried driving to safety, his Humvee wouldn't budge. It was running, but it was not going anywhere. It's like the transmission was in neutral. You know, everything's on fire, so it's getting pretty damn hot. We can't get anyone on the radio because the radio is just going nuts. In the haze of smoke and heat, Merritt and his men were taking on artillery fire. And just when it seemed there was no escape, the Humvee transmission came alive and he drove the soldiers to safety. I had not smoked a cigarette in five years prior to that moment. I smoked six in 30 minutes. And I smoked every day for the rest of the time that I was in country, as well as chewed tobacco. Back home in South Carolina, Merritt's wife, Sonia, had no idea what had happened, and he didn't offer any details. But during a Skype call, she noticed the cigarette. I knew something was wrong when I saw the cigarette in his hand because he had quit smoking for I forgot how many years. Merritt, a father of four and a veteran with a dozen years of service, was no stranger to combat. He joined the Marines as a 19-year-old and fought in the first Gulf War. I participated in Desert Shield with the buildup, and I participated as ground fighting forces during the invasion of Kuwait and the liberation of Kuwait. 
But the man who came back from that war was different from the man who came back from post-9-11 Iraq. Sonia says he was irritable, quick to react, and hypervigilant. She and the kids found themselves walking on eggshells. We could just say the wrong thing. If I was gone and I didn't text him back right then, he would think that something happened to me. Turns out the IED blast sent him home with PTSD and a traumatic brain injury. Then, an incident he doesn't speak about publicly worsened the PTSD. For about 10 years, Merritt tried to just live with the symptoms. There's been so many times where I've exploded. I've jerked people out of cars. I've thrown shit through the walls. You know, it's just, I've lost it. There's been times I've been curled up in that corner with a shotgun. But then, a fellow veteran told him about PTSD help provided by the Warrior Care Network. That's a partnership between the nonprofit Wounded Warrior Project and four of the nation's top academic medical centers. Among them, Emory School of Medicine in Atlanta. Clinical psychologist Barbara Rothbaum has worked in the PTSD field for more than three decades, and now she heads the Emory Healthcare Veterans Program. Among the challenges of healing PTSD, she says, is something psychologists call avoidant behavior. It's a way many of us cope with trauma. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want anything to remind them of it. Sometimes they can talk about it seemingly pretty easily, but then what I notice is that they've cut themselves off from their emotions. And so that's part of PTSD, too. We call it emotional numbing. For them, Rothbaum says, traditional exposure therapy doesn't work so well because the only way to heal emotional trauma is to go through it. I make a lot of analogies to the grief process. When someone we love dies, it's very painful. But by being around other people that love them, by crying, by experiencing the pain, we, we get through it. So maybe six months down the road, we still miss them. It's still painful, but it's not as intensely painful. Maybe we can talk about them without crying. But asking combat veterans to dig into those painful emotions their combat training teaches them to bury isn't easy. And the longer they've kept emotions under lock and key, the less likely traditional exposure therapy will work. And that's where virtual reality can be a game changer. Rothbaum was the first to test virtual reality exposure therapy on veterans. She did that in the late 1990s with Vietnam combat vets who were considered treatment resistant. And we wanted to see, would the virtual reality, it was such a potent stimulus, could it have anything to offer them as another treatment alternative? And it did. They got better. They reported that it didn't bother them anymore these experiences that have been haunting them for decades. Rothbaum and Rizzo are colleagues who have spent the last 20 years studying, testing, and developing virtual reality software to treat military PTSD. Skip Rizzo's group at USC, which gets funding from the U.S. military and private donors, has been developing BraveMind for nearly 15 years. Today, the virtual reality system offers up more than a dozen wartime scenarios that match nearly any experience a post-9-11 vet can conjure up. Our first version only had four worlds, so we got a lot of feedback you know, from clinicians that were using it to treat people. Do you have an Afghan village? Do you have remote mountain outposts. The first iterations of BraveMind date back to 2004, a time, Rizzo says, when few believed PTSD would be as big an issue as it turned out to be. In fact, we had applied to NIH for funding, and one of the reviewers had the audacity 
or the ignorance or whatever to say, we don't think that there's going to be a problem like with Vietnam, um, you know, with this. Uh, you know, we don't even know if this would get used. For Joe Merritt and many of the 100 vets accepted into the treatment at Emory each year, the emotional excavation does more than just reduce anxiety and PTSD symptoms. It also helps veterans understand what actually happened in combat, that the story they've been telling themselves for years or even decades may not be accurate. A lot of people feel guilty about their behavior, what they did to survive, what they didn't do. And by going through it in that much detail, patients come to the realization I don't know what else I could have done. The insurgent planted that IED so we wouldn't see it. There were a lot of eyes on the road. It wasn't just me. I tried to help my put on a tourniquet. I did everything I could, and it sucks, but it wasn't my fault. Joe Merritt's wife, Sonia, credits the intensive treatment he underwent at Emory with helping save his life. He realizes now that he's not a monster and that he can cope with everyday life. He's also far less irritable with the family, with neighbors, with strangers. And now he knows how to just turn and walk away instead of adding fuel to the flame. We don't have to walk on eggshells as much. I'm not going to say it's a complete cure, but he does think about what he says now before he says it or before he does something. Merritt says the Emory program restored a sense of calm and worth to his life and relationships that he thought was forever lost. He says whenever he meets veterans struggling with PTSD, he urges them to consider the program. It's free to vets, travel expenses, hotel and food included. But he says it does require hard work. The virtual reality is scary, but at the same time, when you come through it, it's uh, it's like a breath of fresh air. It's like, yeah, I went to boot camp and I survived. So you got to kind of put it in that mentality that you're, you're going to get through it. It's going to end. And now you're going to have tools to fall back on to try to make that situation better than it would have been prior to exposure and virtual therapy. What a story. This guy, Merritt, that was brave. I have a lot of respect for people who do the hard thing. I mean, stepping back in time, reliving an ambush, that takes some backbone. I know. I can only imagine what that would be like in real life. I mean, just experiencing it through virtual reality was so intense. So tell me about that experience. You put on the VR goggles. You go off to virtual Iraq and virtual Afghanistan. Does it feel real? You know, I'm not military. I've never been to the Middle East, but it felt like I was there. My heart rate was elevated. I was feeling stressed. I totally get why it was a bit scary for Joe Merritt, but he'll be the first to tell you the alternative for these vets. Living with emotional trauma buried deep inside extracts a huge cost in their lives. And compared to that, it seems trivial to talk about money, but money matters. So how expensive are these virtual reality systems to treat PTSD? I remember when they first came out like 20 years ago, just the headsets cost thousands of dollars. That's true. Skipperzo says, 
because when he and Barbara Rothbaum were first getting started doing this work, the VR headsets and trackers cost about $14,000. And now you can get virtual reality headsets for your iPhone for a couple hundred bucks. And the entire BraveMind system is going to be available for about $400. Whoa. And then the quality of the virtual reality is way better. So the hope is that they can get these upgraded units into more VAs and other places so more veterans can have access to this type of help. And yet access to help doesn't mean veterans will necessarily seek it. Exactly. In fact, Rand's Invisible Wounds of War study pointed out the many barriers to mental health treatment, stigma being a big one. That was definitely a take-home message from the Rand study, which had such a huge impact on how everyone now talks about military PTSD. And now we're going to hear from one of its lead researchers. And joining us now is the RAND Corporation's Terry Tenelian. She's co-author of the Invisible Wounds of War study. Terry's a nationally recognized expert on veteran mental health. Among her interests, the psychological effect of combat on veterans. Welcome, Terry. Thank you for having me. Post-traumatic stress is one of those injuries that's sort of invisible in two ways. One, there's no outward physical trauma, and two, it's easy for society and the military to ignore it. Yes, absolutely. Certainly, you wouldn't necessarily be able to identify um, outwardly an individual who's experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder while we're working on trying to define biomarkers and other ways that we might be able to diagnose it. Um, you know, From the outside, you wouldn't be able to tell who may be struggling with it. Yeah, that was a very exciting part of this um, this visit that I made to Emory was learning that there are actually ways to measure these biomarkers. Let's talk about that for a moment. Um, I was in a startle booth, and so they could measure how easily I startled. And then if I'd gone through their exposure therapy, they would have measured it again at the end. And there would have been this physiological measure that wasn't just me subjectively saying something about how I felt better or how I didn't feel better. Um that's really important, isn't it? It is important. I think it's really, um, you know, a new area with technology development to think about how we can assess how an individual's body, our brain, our uh, biomarkers might change as a consequence of having a particular condition. It will help improve our diagnostic specificity um, to be able to understand when an individual is, is experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder, and it can help us develop new therapeutics and to determine how well those therapeutics are, in fact, working. So if we can see a change in not just the physiological response, but if those other related and associated biomarkers change, then we can see that someone is actually experiencing recovery. When you first heard about virtual reality being used, virtual reality exposure therapy, what were your thoughts? Well, you know, prolonged exposure therapy is one of the evidence-based treatments for PTSD, and certainly the use of virtual reality is a different way to bring in exposure to the particular trauma that you experienced. And so it wasn't a surprise that we were thinking about the ways technology could be infused into our treatments for PTSD. How are you feeling about some of these uh, treatments that are out there now for um, military folks with PTSD? Are you feeling optimistic or... I am optimistic. I think it's important that we continue to emphasize um, the delivery of evidence-based treatments in all of our systems of care to ensure that no matter where a veteran or a service member who's suffering from PTSD gets care, that they are first offered an evidence-based 
form of treatment. We know that even our best treatments may not work for everyone, so we need to continue to invest in studies to find new innovative ways that are going to be efficacious and really bring about recovery and symptom reduction for individuals with PTSD. One of the big challenges, though, is stigma. So, and the stigma also, it's, it's among service members themselves, it's from the military, it's from society. Are we making any progress there? So stigma is kind of a catch-all term for what we understand to be many, many different types of barriers to care. And certainly there are many reasons why individuals are reluctant to reach out and seek help. And many of those have to do with concerns about the confidentiality of the care that they may receive. And this is certainly something we observe in the military and veteran population. They're concerned that their leadership may become aware or their employer may learn that they're seeking mental health um, care and think less of them as a result. And so they're concerned about some of the repercussions that getting help may have on their career, for example. They're concerned about the impact it could have on their ability to get a security clearance. And so those are very real barriers to care. When we talk about stigma, it's often really about the beliefs and attitudes that individuals have about individuals who have mental health problems and whether they will think less of them as a result. Um, There's also the stigma around um, treatments and the belief and the perception of whether or not mental health care will work. And so we've seen a lot of effort designed to educate and inform the public and military service members, veterans, and their families about mental health conditions such as PTSD, as well as to educate them about the effectiveness of mental health care. But we haven't necessarily seen an increase in help seeking. And so while we've done a lot to change attitudes and beliefs about mental health through education campaigns, um, we haven't necessarily seen a huge change in the rate at which people are getting care. So that suggests to me that we also need to tend to some of these other barriers that I mentioned that aren't just about beliefs and attitudes, but that are about real repercussions or consequences that individuals may experience by coming forward and getting help. Is there any chance that this virtual reality exposure therapy can kind of open the door for some of these younger post 9-11 veterans to get help? Perhaps. And, you know, really understanding an individual's preference for the type of treatment that they may be comfortable receiving is an important component of providing high-quality care. And so, again, we want all providers to be offering evidence-based forms of therapy, whether it be prolonged exposure or other forms of cognitive processing or cognitive behavioral therapy. And just let's turn back to Invisible Wounds of War. So huge study. It really changed a lot of policy, a lot of the way that people thought in this country. Because before that, it was sort of like, oh, PTSD is a a Vietnam vet syndrome. The Vietnam War, obviously, was our first real awakening to the numbers of individuals who were coming home and struggling with psychological and psychosocial consequences of having been in combat. And so it really was the beginning of our understanding of post-traumatic stress disorder. Over the past several decades, though, we've had additional investments in understanding it. Uh, We have better screening techniques to detect if an individual is experiencing the symptoms associated with PTSD, and we have um, better therapeutic interventions. And so we know now better how to detect it 
and how to treat it. And so it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we're identifying it as early as possible and intervening in the population. When we did the study in 2008, it was the first wide-scale assessment of the population who had returned from Iraq or Afghanistan. There have been smaller-scale studies. There have certainly been some things that have been published. But this was the first systematic assessment of the population who had deployed. And so it gave us our first estimates of just the size and scale and scope of PTSD, depression, among those returning from Iraq and Afghanistan. And what you found out was one in five, about uh, one in five veterans coming back from post-9-11 wars have PTSD. And I guess the general public thinks it's, it's more than that, right? So we found that about one in five experience symptoms consistent with PTSD or depression. And so we found about 14% had symptoms consistent with post-traumatic stress disorder at that time. And so, again, that was a point-in-time estimate. That is not the same as saying of all the veterans um, who had been deployed at that time, did they ever experience post-traumatic stress disorder since they had returned home. This was at that particular point in time. There are obviously multiple studies that have also shown that the rate of PTSD, you know, varies based upon the population that you examine, how you assess it, um, and, you know, kind of what you're trying to generalize to. And so the rates of those um, studies have shown that PTSD can be anywhere between about 12% to 20% in the population. But I think there is a general misperception in the public that um, more veterans may be experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder than are. And again, it's not to say that individuals may not have some symptoms of trauma or um, struggle with adjustment after they come home from a deployment or a combat situation, but it's not the majority who will experience post-traumatic stress disorder. So let's talk for a moment about Emory's program. Emory implemented a program under the Welcome Back Veterans Initiative to deliver evidence-based treatments to veterans with PTSD. Over time, Emory has expanded their veterans program and is now part of the Warrior Care Network, which is one of four academic medical centers um, funded by the Wounded Warrior Project to provide pro bono intensive outpatient therapy for um, veterans who are struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder. And why are they important? These non-governmental centers of excellence are important because they provide another opportunity and option for veterans um, with PTSD to get help and to get high-quality care. So this intensive outpatient program is relatively new in the private sector. While the Department of Veterans Affairs and the Department of Defense both had intensive outpatient programs, they had limited capacity to serve a number of individuals. And so this opens up new capacity um, and it provides care to individuals who may not otherwise be eligible for VA care or who may prefer not to get VA care because they're seeking additional confidentiality or want to be treated in the private sector. We know that not all veterans who experience post-traumatic stress disorder are getting the help they need, and when they do, they may not be getting the evidence-based care that we know can promote recovery. So we still have a lot more work to do to ensure that all of our systems of care are equipped and capable of delivering the highest quality service to those with these conditions. Terry Tenelian, Senior Behavioral Health Scientist with the RAND Corporation. Terry, thank you so much. Thank you, Stephanie. 
Veterans in America is a podcast produced by the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit research organization developing solutions to public policy challenges to help make communities throughout the world safer and more secure, healthier, and more prosperous. We would like to thank everyone at the RAND Corporation and our stellar engineer, Kevin Ferguson. Our theme song is called Too Cool. It's by Kevin McLeod. You can find more music at his website, incompetech.com. He also produced the interstitial music used in this week's episode. For Veterans in America, I'm David Gorn. And I'm Stephanie O'Neill.